1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five
2: dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The
1: Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts.
3: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the battlefront, discuss the news from the EU Council meeting today in Brussels, and Francis Dernley interviews Congresswoman Victoria Spouts about perceptions of the war inside the Republican Party. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job.
2: Slava, Ukraini. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
3: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 26th of October, one year and 244 days since the full-scale invasion began. Joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley, and Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, who's calling in live from the EU Council meeting in Brussels. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from the battlefront.
4: Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start in the east. And Russian generals are said to be throwing their troops forward in their assault on Avdivka despite suffering heavy losses. This is from Ukrainian official, So Alexander Stupin, spokesperson for Ukraine's southern group of forces, said the enemy is trying to move forward and then we beat them back. He estimated Russian losses in the last six days. There's two and a half thousand dead and wounded in the area. Obviously, there's uh, we didn't give a figure, but we've seen some pretty high numbers for Equipment losses as well, and armoured vehicles, tanks and so on. He said this is quite significant even for Russia, bearing in mind that they do not look after their own men. Now, I mean, the fight for Avdivka has been going on in with great intensity for a few weeks now. Russia's still not managed to envelop the town. A huge amount of fighting going on, extremely violent Ukraine undoubtedly would have been suffering high casualties, although it is generally, unless you overrun, there are generally fewer casualties on the defending side. But we should expect and anticipate high casualties from, from Ukraine's side as well. Numbers are very, very hard to come by. They really are tight on their, uh, on releasing figures, so we, we don't know. But I just think we should just have a think about Avdivka. It's not a hugely strategic town. All it does is a bit of a buffer towards Donetsk City. So Ukraine trying to push back and reclaim territory, they've got to go through Avdivka to get to Donetsk. So Russia would want to hold that town because it's a it's an outer you know it's an outer staging post, if you like, for Donetsk. But it doesn't really do much other than that. There's not an awful lot there. It's not a big logistic hub. It doesn't doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't do a, a huge amount and i just wonder if it's it's now symbolic for russia a bit like bakhmut was last year that they have to take it to to, to take the whole oblast and they're desperate for a victory hadn't had a victory for months so they are they are pushing hard there and i wonder if of course you never like to give up ground but you know if you if you trade ground for something that's more important to you i.e. time or or lives personnel choose to fight on ground of your own choosing there's nothing wrong with going backwards as long as you as long as you are able to go forwards in the future. And I wonder if, if Ukraine is viewing Avdivka a little bit like Bakhmut as the place to have a, have a fight because the relative costs they might deem are worth it. And just as Bakhmut was the fault line between the regular Russian army and the so-called People's Republics and the and Wagner in particular, but other mercenary groups, and it really fed into that whole spat in the Kremlin and those fault lines... Part you can't. There's no direct line, but I think I think what happened in Bakhmut and the huge numbers they lost there. I think that did contribute to the eventual collapse and the relationship between Wagner and the Kremlin and Prigozhin and and all that kind of stuff. So it really did shatter. or had an effect later down the line. I would suggest. I wonder if the same thing is happening here. So in Avdivka we we see in, the russian forces at the moment we see poor morale we see a lack of fighting spirit we see a lack of trust in their commanders and i and we see these huge casualty figures and i wonder if ukraine are thinking it's a very hard fight they are losing men and material but the fight is worth it to push on these fault lines ahead of winter and see what happens if not immediately now then potentially in the in the in the sort of you know the medium term i just wonder but it, it, there's still a huge fight going on in in Abdivka, which we will undoubtedly come back to Next, President Zelensky said last night a Russian drone attack yesterday on early yesterday in the western Kamenitsky region had probably targeted the area's nuclear power station. That attack shattered windows in the plant, injured twenty, no deaths reported. The International Atomic Energy Agency, obviously the UN's nuclear watchdog said blasts from the drone attack didn't affect the plant's operations or its connection to the grid although power was temporarily cut off to some off-site radiation monitoring stations then in last night's uh, the nightly video address president zelensky said the attack proved yet more or provided yet more evidence that tougher sanctions were needed against russia and now yesterday we spoke of the supply of artillery ammunition from north korea to help russia Fight, uh, particularly around nevdivka but but generally uh well it's almost as if someone was listening to pod listening to the pod because in a joint statement uh, issued by the top diplomats of south korea the us and japan officials have strongly condemned what they call north korea's supply of munitions and military equipment to russia saying that such weapon shipments sharply increase the human toll of russia's uh, war in ukraine so the joint statement um, has come just days after Russia's foreign minister scoffed at a recent US claim that his country receive, was receiving munitions from North Korea and said Washington had failed to prove the allegation. Yeah, fair, fine, fair enough. Um, but the joint statement by South Korean foreign minister Park Jin, uh, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Japanese foreign minister Yoko Kamakawa said, uh, we will continue to work together with the international community to expose Russia's attempt attempts to acquire military equipment from North Korea. Such weapon deliveries, several of which we now confirm have been completed, will significantly increase the human toll of Russia's war of aggression. So South Korean foreign ministry spokesperson Lim Su-suk then later said the joint statement was meant to show the three countries resolve to actively respond to uh, to a weapon transfer deal that Russia and North Korea have been pursuing in defiance of repeated warnings by uh, by the international community. And then today's update from Britain's Defence Intelligence Department said that despite Russia's official rejection of recent reports, it is almost certain that North Korean munitions have now reached Russia. They estimate that if North Korea sustains the recent scale and pace of military-related shipments, which they assess has seen more than 1,000 containers, shipping containers delivered in uh, just recent the recent weeks, It will be on course to become one of Russia's most significant foreign arms suppliers alongside Iran and Belarus. So Britain's MOD say Russia has likely offered a mixture of financial compensation, the provision of miltech and uh, cooperation on other high technology areas such as space. But these deals have probably been agreed during the recent senior level Russian visits to North Korea that that we've been reporting on. So I think it is. I think it's happening. I, I believe that that is what is going on. And again, I mean, you know, not good news, not good that there's this, this axis forming, but look at what it does mean. I mean, if, if Russia, this industrial powerhouse, we're, we're led to believe, is going to North Korea for artillery shells, I mean, what it just speaks of the, this, the system not being able to cope. We think they might be able to, or Phillips O'Brien, St. Andrew's University is saying that they might be able to put 500 tanks in the field a year. This is Russian industrial capacity. He's suggesting that's 250 new and 250 refurbished. That ain't a lot, and we think they've lost that um, about 5,000. We think they've probably got two or three thousand left of of all vintages back to Second World War vintage uh, tanks. So so a lot of them, but but pretty old. So if Russian industry can't can't ramp up to that, and they they can't ramp up the artillery shells either and you know i went to washington in in northeast england i'm not suggesting that i could n- knock one up in the kitchen this afternoon with francis durney wearing a pinny but it's not that complicated to make artillery shells and if the russian state having to go to north korea for artillery and other equipment it speaks of of something that's that's gone badly wrong in their in their industrial system but we will come back to that uh, issue i am sure and there's plenty more to be getting on with today so i will take a pause there thank
3: you very much tom um, I'm, and I'm, as you said, I'm sure we'll come back to Avtiefkin, the situation there uh, many times over the next uh, few days and weeks. Um, Francis Tony, let's go to you. There's been quite a big day in the US in politics. Talk us through what's happened with the new speaker.
1: Thanks, David. It has indeed been a significant 24 hours for our purposes, as well as for the US more broadly. The Republican Party has finally, as you say, elected a new House speaker after the ousting of Kevin McCarthy by hardliners some three weeks ago. Mike Johnson, the party's fourth nominee for the top job, managed to secure 220 votes, winning enough support to take the gavel. So, where does he stand on Ukraine? Well, the first signs are not promising for Kyiv. He opposes providing more funding for the war publicly. He is also a staunch ally of Donald Trump and served on his impeachment defence team, as well as spearheading legal efforts to overturn the 2020 vote. Mr Johnson is, technically speaking, the least experienced speaker in the post-Civil War era. He's never chaired a committee or held a senior leadership role. Yet he is second in line for the presidency now, after the vice president. Lawmakers appear to know very little about him. When asked what it would be like to work for the new speaker, Susan Collins, the senator for Maine, said she'd need to Google him to find out who he was. Mitt Romney, the senator from Utah, who I interviewed for the podcast on our U.S. trip, which was a real honor, reacted to the election, saying apparently experience isn't necessary for the speaker job. We're down to folks who haven't had leadership or chairmanship roles, which means their administration of the House will be a new experience. Speaking from outside a New York courthouse where he's on trial over a lawsuit alleging business fraud, Mr. Trump said he hadn't heard one negative comment about Mr. Johnson. Everyone likes him. His election brings an end to, as I say, more than three weeks of chaos since the ousting of Kevin McCarthy. That vacancy, as we've discussed many times, has paralysed the House, preventing lawmakers from addressing various global crises. He'll be thrown in at the deep end, to put it mildly, trying to avert a government shutdown and responding crucially to President Biden's $106 billion spending request, which includes sending aid to Israel and Ukraine, as we discussed at length last week. It's very interesting and significant the way the president has sought to combine both those two issues, which I'll come to in a final thought later on, but also to combine the package, the economic packages of support for both. I think he's done so for political reasons. And as we talked about earlier in the week, very significant potentially for both of those conflicts as they're developing. We'll be monitoring it all very closely. In other rather gloomy news for Kyiv, Slovakia's newly appointed prime minister, Robert Fico, will not back further military aid for Ukraine, nor support further sanctions against Russia, he said at his first European Union summit, the one where Joe will be calling in from any moment now, and he will be covering that breaking news in more detail. But in other news just to conclude my section, Ukrainian businesses are preparing for the prospect of another tough winter of widespread power outages amid fears that Russia will seek to repeat a campaign of airstrikes on its civilian infrastructure. I mention this here because Kiev's Western allies have been working very hard to ensure that power outages of the scale of last year are not repeated to anywhere near the severity A lot of that's happening in the background, but if Ukraine can be successful in ensuring cities like Kiev don't suffer power outages despite the bombardments, that will mark a major success, measured perhaps by how little we will need to talk about it, which is one of the curses of a job well done. It usually means no one clocks it, but it would mark significant progress as well as saving many, many lives. And just lastly, I was talking about Kiev's priorities regarding tackling the perception of corruption in Tuesday's episode. And we learned today from Reuters that billionaire tycoon Ihor Kolomoisky, who is in custody on suspicion of fraud, has transferred control over One Plus One Media, one of Ukraine's largest media groups, to its general director for the next five years. That decision was taken yesterday as Kolomoisky is currently unable to fully carry out his duties, the group said. It also cited the need to protect and preserve principles of freedom of speech, impartiality, and objective coverage of events. Kolomoisky is regarded as one of the oligarchs who accumulated substantial industrial wealth following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, subsequently exerting significant political and economic sway. Zelensky himself rose to prominence on one of his channels, but in September He was served with a notice of allegations of embezzlement following his detention on suspicion of fraud and money laundering, something that he denies. It's a notable development on Ukraine's crackdown on such figures, though Zelensky's opponents are arguing that it may be politically motivated too. Later in the episode, we'll be running an interview I did with Congresswoman Victoria Sparks, who, interestingly, was born in Ukraine and is now serving as a member of Congress for the 5th District of Indiana. She touches on the damage done to Ukraine by that perception of corruption, not only in the short term context, but also thinking back many years. So I recommend listening to that interview for a unique perspective on this war. She is also... A Republican identifying as belonging to the right of the party. So it's also interesting in the context of today's events. So I highly recommend that. Well,
3: thank you very much, Francis and Dom. Let's go to Joe Barnes then. Uh, Joe, you're live at the EU Council meeting. What's the atmosphere there? Where are you talking to us from?
2: Uh, hi, folks. Yeah, so I'm in the uh, Justice Lipsius building of the European Council in. Brussels. i am stood on one of the several broadcast gantries and i've swapped the uh, what was a green uh hoodie to interview mikhaila fedorov the ukrainian minister for digital transformation yesterday to a sort of a tweed jacket more in keeping with telegraph fashion i'd say to report on what's going on here so i must first say that much of the focus here is on the war between Israel and Hamas. So EU leaders are going to try and hash out a compromise on language, calling for a ceasefire. But to keep it short, there are two camps. There are one who want a ceasefire to ensure humanitarian aid reaches Palestinian civilians. And there is one camp that doesn't want to give Hamas time to regroup. But Ukraine is very much on the agenda. And given that this is Ukraine the latest, that's what I'm going to stick to. So firstly, arriving at the summit in Brussels, European Council President Charles Michel, he said it's key for us to make very clear we support Ukraine for as long as it takes and we will discuss how we could develop more support. It's not out of anyone's wildest imaginations, as I said. A lot of the focus is on Israel and the war with Hamas. So there are concerns that sort of European attention and resources being diverted in that direction and away from Ukraine. Uh, So President Zelensky, as he normally does, is expected to join EU leaders... Um, in a discussion later as he will dial in via video link so perhaps more on that tomorrow because it's not happened yet so we don't know what he's going to say but there are a few things that we could look at and what are going to be discussed by eu leaders when it comes to supporting ukraine so first of all there's something that we discussed earlier in the week a 500 million euro package to help member states fund weapons deliveries to ukraine i expect that's probably going to go through today there's a little bit of sort of opposition from the hungarians uh, as francis was saying robert of Slovakia but I think there's going to be enough political will to slip something to Ukraine at a time when so much focus is on Israel. There will be a wider discussion on a 20 billion euro package which has the same aim to buy weapons for Ukraine but over a four-year period. This is part of Ukraine's long term support from the EU. This is going to be a little bit more controversial and there are some probably bigger hurdles to overcome than the initial 500 million so for example you have france they are calling for the fund to exclusively be used to purchase european-made weapons for ukraine so france wants this to essentially bolster europe's defense industry france is big on this idea called a strategic autonomy which basically says europe should be independent of the likes of the us and other big sort of markets when it comes to defense and industry and this is one way emmanuel Macron sees doing that but there are other countries mainly sort of eastern europeans and baltic states that argue by not allowing this fund to you to purchase us weapons uk weapons turkish weapons for instance that it would take away and slow down aid to ukraine that's something we've reported on before and i will touch upon it later the eu's artillery scheme which was aimed to purchase a million artillery shells france pushed desperately to make sure that only european firms and businesses could basically tap into this resource resource and the fund but at the end of the day common sense over, one over and US and UK firms could be involved in some point. And then what we have is an expected discussion on how the EU could use frozen Russian funds so that's funds that have been sanctioned and frozen inside Europe to help with the reconstruction of Ukraine post-war. So Sanctioned Russian assets in Belgium at the Euro Euroclear clearing house have made three billion euros alone in profits since the start of the war. So one of the ideas is that you could take those profits and use those to fund reconstruction projects in Ukraine. Um, even amongst sort of Ukraine's staunchest backers, it's kind of controversial. And seen as not ethical to take Russian funds that have been frozen directly, because while I think a lot of people would back the idea that Russian funds that have been frozen could just be taken and used to fund reconstruction, some see it as a sort of a a theft and worry that it sets a precedent that for voters that is it okay to take your house if we need to do so. So that's one of sort of the controversies that I see being overtaken and overcome by the idea that can we use the profits from interest payments to fund uh, Ukraine but without being said there are a few roadblocks uh, to sort of overcome and hurdles first you have the likes of Hungary um, who always speak out about weapons deliveries and sanctions against Russia but ultimately come on board um, time and time again I'm sure someone will slip Viktor Orban, the Hungarian Prime Minister, a slight wink and a nudge, a slight concession, and that will help pave the way, as I said the other day, for this £500 package. But then, as Francis alluded to, you have the arrival in town for the first time since his re-election, Slovakian Prime Minister Robert Fico. So he's been a, a a Slovakian Prime Minister before, and ahead of his arrival, so I haven't seen his doorstep interview yet, if he's done one, but ahead of his arrival, his officials were saying that, look, he is not going to back any further aid or sanctions against russia so he doesn't want to fund ukrainian weapons deliveries he doesn't want to sanction russia more so mr fitzo he campaigned heavily for his september election victory on a pledge to halt his country's military aid to ukraine and make its foreign policy independent from brussels so yeah look that's going to be that's going to be difficult to overcome but i do have a slight feeling that he's t- Keen to talk tough, get the rhetoric in public. But I think he will keep a very low profile when European leaders are discussing Ukraine amongst themselves uh, in the secretive meeting that is the European Council. And then just something else to touch to, as I touched on earlier, um, and the EU's uh, artillery uh, shell scheme for Ukraine. Um, So it's emerged that the European Union has only delivered a third of the one million artillery shells It promised to Ukraine um, as the bloc's plan to ramp up production essentially falls behind schedule. So what we understand is Brussels has delivered around 300 to 350,000 rounds of 155mm ammunition since signing off on this scheme. That was initially reported by Bloomberg, but I've spoken to other people and they've corroborated with it. It's something that has been doing the rounds for a while now. So under the plan, member states were initially encouraged to dip into their existing stockpiles before clubbing together to sign joint purchase orders, joint procurement orders large enough to convince manufacturers to ramp up production. So in March, this was sort of agreed uh, that it would happen. Some of the technicalities took a bit longer, but they had planned to make those deliveries, that 1 million shell deliveries over a 12-month period. So essentially we have, we're halfway through that time now. We've got what, six, it's about six months to go until March and only 300,000 rounds have been delivered so that is quite drastically behind schedule and that will only exasperate those fears that the war between Israel and Hamas could divert military aid can divert attention away from Kiev's plight so I think that's one thing President Zelensky is really going to sort of try and hammer home he's going to really try and get European leaders to assert their steadfast support for Ukraine as long as it's war with Russia is still going on and I'll stop there
3: well, thank you very much, Joe. Joe, could you just give us an idea of what you'll be looking at over the next day and a half? How long is this this meeting going on for? And what are the sort of what are the big moments you'll be looking to when you when you join us again tomorrow?
2: Uh, yeah, so it's um, oh, so I'm standing over probably looking at a thousand journalists. What's that? A battalion of journalists, Dom? Um, and they're all looking at various different things. But so I think my main focus will be on yeah my main focus will be on I think the Israeli ceasefire language is going to be really interesting. Uh, there are clear divisions between that. But on Ukraine, I'm going to be looking at. What is Zelensky offered something? Is he offered this five hundred million euros in extra weapons? What is the language around the support for Ukraine? Is talk of a ceasefire going to creep back into European language? That was something that was so often spoken about, especially from the French at the beginning of Russia's full-scale invasion. Is that going to start creeping into to rhetoric spoken about in European circles at this at this time uh, when ceasefire talks are on the table for Israel? Is that, but I just think what we're going to come out of this with is hopefully some more promises for Ukraine, and that's what I'll be looking at. And I'd be, I'd be really fascinated to see if there is any movement on this idea that they will, that the EU will seize the profits that have been made from frozen Russian assets and use those and put those forward for reconstruction projects in the future. I think that would be a massive step, and that would be a massive victory for the likes of the Eastern Europeans, Kaya Kallas, especially, the Estonian Prime Minister, who had really championed this idea of there being legal mechanisms of legal ways to seize russian assets fruit like take their profits from them and use them for reconstruction projects And i think that'd be a major step for the eu and a victory for sort of the uh, pro-ukrainian hawks as they as they should be called
3: thank you very much joe for all of that that was absolutely fascinating I look forward to hearing some more of your reporting tomorrow any thoughts on any of that dom or francis before we move to our final thoughts
4: yeah, just on the number i mean it's a very it's a very rough figure but we think ukraine is using about about 200,000 artillery shells a month we know the us have said that they're going to ramp up to producing 86,000 155 mil shells a month by well kind of nine months time when we, when we did the us tour and i went up to picatinny arsenal that was the figure that i was quoted so that's what they're ramping up to and we think that was Probably going to be about about half of what Ukraine really needs, and they'll be looking for for uh, for Europe to match that you know, plus a little bit. So it's not an exact science, but you know the three hundred thousand will be swallowed up very very quickly. The pledge of a million is good but like i say we, we reckon we're working on about or for ease of maths say two hundred and fifty thousand um a month so f- a million four months so it's it's good it's enough for the short term the immediate term if you like but it's not um it it needs to be more than that and needs to be on, on a much more regular and enduring basis well
3: thank
1: you very much dom let's move then to our final thoughts francis sternly Thanks, David. I spoke last week about how several world leaders such as President Biden and President Zelensky and former world leaders such as Boris Johnson have in the past week and a half or so sought to make more explicit overlaps between events in the Middle East and Ukraine. They see the destruction of a terrorist entity like Hamas as sending as important a signal as the defeat of Russia in Ukraine, part of a broader battle of values against Barbarism, if you will. Many listeners who support Ukraine will agree with that view. Others will look at it more coolly and simply say that to defeat forces tacitly being supported by Russia and Iran in the Middle East will have ramifications on the battlefield in Ukraine, not least in the sphere of, of, of drones, and therefore is to Kiev's advantage. But I also think it's important to articulate the view of others, including some Ukrainians I've spoken to privately and some listeners that do not feel comfortable with the war for Ukraine and the battle to defeat Hamas as being seen as part of a wider struggle. Some even find the comparison rather insulting not only due to the difference in scale, with so many killed and so many towns and cities under constant bombardment from one of the world's largest armies in Ukraine, but also because they see the war in Ukraine as a clear case of unprovoked aggression by a much stronger military. They also say that if one looks beyond the terrible events of a fortnight ago, that this is a part of a much larger conflict spanning decades, not weeks. And in short, they argue that to simplify the two conflicts by placing them under one banner, whether it be for freedom or for Western values, is doing a disservice to the Ukrainians. Now, I mention that because I think it's going to become a recurring theme over the coming weeks, especially if parallels do continue to be made between the two. Many will ask if it is to President Zelensky's benefit to draw parallels, as it could cost him reputationally among those countries in Africa, say, or the Middle East, who he's been trying to court for support. Clearly, for now, given the vital military resources he receives from the West, he believes it is to his advantage to support Israel in its fight to defeat Hamas. But there is a chance that will change, and we'll need to monitor that. Either way, I feel... It's important to register that debate. Though I think we can all agree that the deaths of children, of civilians, wherever they are, whichever country, whichever conflict, whichever time, is a tragedy. And it's one that is important to mark. Thank you very much, Francis Sternley. Uh, Dom Nichols, would you like to go next?
4: Yeah, thanks, David. I just want to note that today is America's National Day of the Deployed. So the U.S. uh, Department of Defense tweeted earlier today or earlier today, today's the day to honour, although they spell honour incorrectly. They said today's the day to honour all service members who are deployed or have been deployed in service to this country. We recognise the sacrifices they make and their families make during deployments. We thank you for your strength and bravery always. Nice, nice note, I thought. I just thought I'd reflect on that. Briefly, it it is sometimes easier being the deployed one. Those when you go out, as I as I did nu- numerous times on deployments, you have a clear task. You hopefully have a unified spirit amongst your amongst your mates, amongst everyone that's there. You are away from the the little uh, you know the petty annoyances of life, or the blooming car tax, and the parents' school WhatsApp groups, all that all that nonsense. That ho, those are at home. um They can't get away from it. They they've got all of that plus. The emotion of having loved ones deployed away. And I experienced this when I when someone very close to me was deployed. And I I felt it from the other side of the looking glass, so to speak, you become acutely aware of time. I suddenly became I don't wear a watch. I don't think it's I don't you know, I I, I sleep when I'm tired. I eat when I'm hungry. I miss a lot of meetings. But you know, I I don't like wearing watches. But you know, I became acutely aware of like the, the hour and the and the half hour because you'd hear on the radio, you hear the news bulletins and what have you, and I was always listening out for. This was in, when the person I was speaking about was deployed in Afghanistan. Always listening out for the news story that said another British soldier has been killed today in Afghanistan. Da 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 da, da. You know, you you just you're just dialing into that almost by, by un, unconsciously. And then at the end of the report, if there were any casualties such as that, any reports, they'd always say. Next of kin have been informed. And of course, that is not news. Next of kin have been informed because next of kin would know that. That is not news. That is a message to the other family, So the rest of us can kind of oh, breathe a sigh of relief and then wait for the next half hour. So, you know, it is acutely difficult. It's very a, a, a very peculiar emotion when you are the, the not deployed person and you're still living a quote unquote normal life. So at my thoughts today are with everybody in, in Ukraine, clearly as they always are, um, everybody in Ukraine who is deployed, and then some who have loved ones further deployed as well. So it's the worst of every single world. So my thoughts are with you, of course, Um, but also just just a message to the to the group if you know anyone who in any service in any any country any nation who has loved ones who are deployed today then why not drop them a line just say hello and if you are in that position if you if you are somewhere listening to this and you have loved ones deployed wherever whenever any nation's service uh, you know you're not alone we're thinking of you and if you if you wish uh, you can get in touch get in touch with us we'll talk nonsense to you if nobody if nobody else will so uh, i just want to Put that little message out there for those who are in the very peculiar position of of having loved ones, uh, loved ones deployed. You know, we're, we're thinking
3: of you today. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Joe Barnes, would you like to finish today?
2: Yeah, I, I, I did want to. Uh, I'm going to go back to the artillery story and the ammunition for Ukraine. Um, so Russia gets a lot of sort of bad rap, especially from West, Western politicians, that it is forced to go to Iran. It's forced to go to North Korea for its artillery shells, its rockets, or vice versa. But it does have a ready supply. They might not be the most technologically advanced shells. They might have higher dud rates than the Western shell. But at the end of the day, it is an artillery shell. And I think the context of Europe slipping behind on its deliveries to uh, Ukraine, there is reports of america sending some shells to israel that were destined for ukraine it just makes it all so important that ukraine needs to find a steady supply of these things if it's going to have any chance if it's going to continue trying to push russia out of its uh, country because without a steady supply of shells it's not that's not going to be possible and at the moment you'd probably say Russia has the upper hand in that artillery battle again Might, maybe not on quality but definitely on quantity and that's that's one of the things that's shown in Avdivka that the Russians aren't, aren't scared to sort of throw men into the meat grinder but it takes men to defend against that and probably some of the losses around Avdivka have been heavier than the Ukrainians would like to admit so it's, it's kind of important I think that's something that probably we need to speak about a little bit more but Western politicians do as well, they really need to try and decide if they want to galvanize their support around ukraine and develop systems where they can help israel fight the terrorists that are hamas but also help help ukraine which is under sort of these terrorist attack almost daily from russia so yeah it's, it's one of those times that we have to actually reflect and sort of think at times it might not always be rosy to sort of report that north korean shells are Russia's last sort of ditch attempt because they're at a shell's a shell at the end of the day and it's something that Ukraine aren't getting enough of from us at the moment so I'll stop there.
3: Thank you Dom, Francis and Joe. The news from the US about the election of the new House speaker brings once again into sharper focus the fault lines in Congress on the subject of Ukraine. One unique voice in the debate is Congresswoman Victoria Sparts. Ukrainian by birth, she's served in the House of Representatives since 2011 and identifies as being on the right of the Republican Party on many issues. This gives her a unique perspective on the war and its perception amongst her colleagues. During our recent US trip, Frances sat down with her in her office in Washington and started by asking for her perspective as a Ukrainian on Vladimir Putin and how, in her view, the West enabled him. Here's their conversation
0: he's an opportunist and he thought that that's going to be able to really unfortunately to fulfill some of his grievances and beefs that he had full on time because I don't think he could ever forgive the West and United States winning the war, the Cold War we have to understand where person came from he was in charge of KGB in East Germany and he saw what's happened and for him That was a big blowback. Unfortunately, we did not as good of a job dealing with these countries after the Soviet Union fell apart. But that's a different conversation. And we allowed him to gain power, and we allowed him to do what he'd done before without real consequences. So I think that was a challenge. I think it was also another challenge because I think... What surprised me, you know, we spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. You know, we were mingling in Europe and Ukraine for some time. And our assessment of situation was so inaccurate in both situations from this administration. That was unfortunate. And the same that was unfortunate that Ukrainian government was not also taken seriously. And that was very concerning for me because we went a few weeks before the war, and a lot of people, not just us, Leland Cadell was really trying to put pressure and he was taking advantage, but he underestimated the Ukrainian
1: people. What do you think America and the wider West could have done to stop this war? Was there anything that could have been done?
0: You know, unfortunately, when you deal with bandits, that, I mean, unfortunately the Russia became a bandit country, Okay, Putin, Putin, unfortunately, you know, this became, he thinks he's a puppet master of all of these bandit groups, you know? And I hate to say what it turned into, it's unfortunate because it's really a big pain in the neck for all of us and not just for us, for very many countries around the world. But I think these people only understand the language of power. I hate to say <laughs> they will get to diplomacy if they see weapons. And if they see real serious consequences and sanctions, they're not stupid. This is not lost career. You know, these people have lives, girls. Money, yeah, houses, they love to have a good life. And this is not people that live in even in some communist countries. Okay. So I think they definitely want to have that, you know, but, you know, they act like bandits. And with bandits, you only have to deal with strengths. And uh, we did not show that strength. We were willing to help Ukraine. Before the war started, weren't serious about doing any sanctions to deter aggression.
1: And he thought, that's a good time to move. What was your reaction then to the full-scale invasion? I understand you still had family in the country at the time.
0: Well, listen, uh, it's interesting because he actually happened to be in Israel that week. And from all of the places, you know, maybe sometimes it's strange, but <laughs> God sent me to it. It was actually just totally consequence. We have our freshman trip that I Cameron McCarthy normally does in August, but due to COVID, um, you know, restriction that they had, they didn't allow any travelers in August. We just happened to move the trip to February, so that was actually a week we've been um, in Jerusalem, and very, very important holy place, and. Uh, it was heartbreaking for me to see that because it's not just you know have family. I knew a lot of people I grew up, but actually the era that it was attacked, it's area I grew up, you know, Chernigov region. So this is the first era that'd been bombed actually safe safety, if I'll be honest with you, heroic people. There. Mm. people don't realize that probably a quarter of population there's actually Russian born, they have Russian family because in Soviet Union, it was used to be a place where they all send the retired military to retire. In Chernigov, it was a beautiful, quiet city. So there are a lot of people with Russian connection. There are a lot of Russian and Belarusians speaking over their people. It's not like they're talking about, like, in Ukraine and they try to do propaganda to these people like anti-Russian. It's just actually very connected people. So a lot of these people were really shocked. They were trying to call their relatives. But it's terrible. The propaganda is such a powerful tool, and their relatives couldn't believe what was happening. But I had a lot of communication with people that some people never communicated for many years when the war happened. You know, a lot of people started communicating, trying to find that. And I was seeing what was happened, and that atrocity heard from real people, what they were doing in villages, how vicious they were. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're born in Ukraine or born in the United States or Germany or anywhere. If you... Hear from such disparity and atrocity as a human being, I couldn't believe it. That is happening. The scale of it and what's really happening, I couldn't believe that. Honestly, you think you believe that was happening, but for me, it was heartbreaking, really, to see and hear that and what suffering people were doing. But also, it was so inspirational how tough the people were. I mean, they got pumped for months, nonstop. I would make some calls and I can hear the landing of artillery, nonstop. They had half a ton missile landing in people's houses, you know, hospitals. I mean, like you could hear that, like nonstop, shelley. They were so pissed off that they couldn't do it. They had tanks on the cemeteries of the fallen heroes, was hidden churches. They just hid the theater, you know, that, in the square where they knew a lot of kids are going to be. They were so mad, you know. And I was actually, in some way, was even somewhat a little bit surprised in some way how heroic people stood up considering that a lot of these people had a lot of Russian and Belarusian connection and a lot of had family on this this is not even like an issue. Like they were defending their country and freedoms. And I was impressed, I'll be honest with you, the heroism people.
1: On this theme, you were one of the first US officials to identify certain Russian activities as war crimes. How do you explain the hesitancy among many people at the time to do so? And the reluctance today in the West to talk about said crimes taking place daily, and to which, to use your word, are genocidal in nature?
0: Well, I think the challenges... I think, unfortunately, a lot of people don't like to say things because then they feel guilty not to do anything. Like Sometimes when you don't talk about it, because we're all human beings and we understand that that should not be acceptable, this type of suffering, we should not allow. But if you're going to pronounce and acknowledge, it's like, oh, you cannot be like part of it, then you have to do something about it. And unfortunately, we have too many people that want to deal with it, right? Because it's a headache. So I think it's unfortunate that we don't take this seriously. And because things like that, I mean, look at Syria, what Russia was doing, you know, and what crimes they were committed. So many people, you know, we just recently talked to some Syrians. It's just heartbreaking what they were doing to people. And they got away with that. They didn't get punished. Nothing happened to them for doing that. But this is real lives of real people destroy, millions of lives of people destroy. And then how much... Do we need to do it every time to allow, you know, very evil people, few, to again destroy lives of millions? And as an international community, not just the vast, all of us should say this stuff should not be acceptable. But it's difficult. Plus, there are a lot of politics and influences and a lot of different things. And I have to say, Russia's pretty good at hybrid warfare. I have to give them credit. They are not The Soviet Union had a very good school of doing, you know, propaganda, manipulations, buying people, and having their agents all over the world and places, you know, that are important. So I think this is something that they spend a lot of time, energy, and as I said, they don't care not himself. I don't care what kind of defenses. You will never have enough money. I'm on the fence." And you knows I spent a lot. So we, don't, we have to take it seriously. I think when he said, you're not taking me seriously, I think we didn't. And we should have been taking him seriously.
1: On that theme, do you think that Russia has compromised the West and the United States?
0: And they're always mingling in a lot of states. You know, you look at the politicians, they have a lot of former politicians sitting on mm-hmm. <laughs> the boards. prom They have a lot of, you know, listen, they're spending money on doing that stuff. So they definitely have connections to a lot of countries because they have a lot of money spent on that. You know, and there are plenty of corrupt people everywhere, right? But I think they also have an ability, if you can see how they did this Wagner group now, you know, remotely, to go and do propaganda through social media, spend it a lot. I mean, they probably had some people on the ground too, but some probably even brainwashed. But they're so good now, they're remotely, they have an ability to distort information so significantly remotely. And if you know, you know, we have very like defensive approach, right? Oh, we're, you know, going on defense, right? We're not going to be attacking on social media on this. They have an offensive approach. And if you're willing to spend a lot of money on that and have smart people dedicated time and resources to do it, you know, and then you have not very informed electorate. People are all over the place because there is so much propaganda thrown on direction, people don't trust anything, but that is targeted at them. It's like, you know, as we say, okay, at least like (laughs) through media channels, you can go like, okay, you don't Fox News, you can click, you kind of get an idea, right? But now we have an ability to target. That's all you will see. You know, unless you go to Google search page 15, all you see, what they want someone to see or somebody pays you to see. And if you're not person with critical thinking and questioning the information, it's become a lot of now monopoly powers of few that able to control people. I think that is a very serious. And I think we have to also teach people and young people particularly. To question what they do, because a lot of people not question it. Some people just so frustrated they don't even trust it.
1: You visited Ukraine since the full-scale invasion, and you've been quite critical of President Zelensky and some of his officials. How would you summarize those critiques?
0: Well, I think it's unfortunately that they were not really getting ready for the war proactively. Regardless how they felt and what is the assessment was, you know, during the Soviet Union, <laughs> we were getting ready that, you know, we're doing drills that the United States is going to attack us. We did all of these things. We were, and you are like, let's say they've been in the war since 2014. You know, and unfortunately, they were not taken seriously building an internally defense department trying to deal with a lot of corruptions in the country, which I don't get the it's very hard. And Russia is taking advantage of all this corruption. But you have to decide if you're going to you know, be serious about that. And I don't think they were serious about that. I think you know, there was a lot of infiltration and eventually under pressure they were able to get rid of some people. But it was obviously, for me, even just someone who doesn't live in the country looking at some things, this didn't make sense. And I don't think they were taken seriously to help the military and population to get ready. Before the invasion, even invasion happened, they really didn't put, like, when you have such major war, you have to get the whole country, in which way people can fight, this is a very serious war. And this is a war you cannot just have, I understand, no, everyone wants to leave, you know, as business as usual, I understand it's tough for people it's hard. But then you will have this never-ending wars, and they usually don't end very well. You know, so if you want to have more decisive, faster victory, you have to organize internally the whole country from little to old, whoever can contribute in whichever way, not rely just on few people that military. No, this is just a lot of young people, very ill-equipped and everything else doing just... I mean, tremendous heroic jobs where these people are doing, doing some innovative things that they're doing from nothing. And they're really true believers in freedoms and want to see the future. A lot of these young kids grew up, they never knew what Soviet Union was. A lot of people don't realize that Ukraine, being independent for over 30 years, some of these people, they don't have any association. This is the country they grew up. This is like a foreign enemy came and trying to kill their children killed their wives, you know, destroyed their parents, everyone, and destroyed their country. It has nothing to do with languages. And he said, that's all Russian propaganda. The most people that fought their Russian-speaking people on the East Ukraine because it's actually, did, you know, affected them the most. And a lot of people, you know, and Russia likes to talk about that. And actually, it works so well that even I myself sometimes, you know, do this east-west Ukraine. There is like actually not east and west Ukraine. There are like the most patriotic people <laughs> that live in the eastern territories, that are dying for the freedom of Ukraine.
1: That was is essential criticism of Zelensky and his government before the full-scale invasion. What about since? How good a job do you think he's done given the circumstances?
0: I don't underestimate the difficulties of his situation,
1: you know, where Ukraine is, but
0: every leader, you know, has to be overseen and questioned, you know, you cannot create gods or someone, you know, there are some things that I think he's trying very hard to do. There are some things he's playing politics and really not taken seriously and worry about next election, making base driven by political decisions and, I don't think this is a good idea to do that, you know, but he came from a different environment. He's definitely facing huge challenges. I don't underestimate the challenges, but I think some things he could do better. And honestly, in a lot of things, even corruption, people have to have consequences, I mean, Yes, he's pushed some people under pressure to replace. Well, none of them <laughs> returned money, went to jail, okay? <laughs> you yeah. replace one group with another. So when you, people don't have consequences for doing some things, it's become a visual circle. And that could be material enough when can defeat a lot of effort. So I don't see it's taken seriously as it should be taken seriously because this could really be a huge problem for the country where They have internal issues, people. They internally that you know like money, but Russia can also put some more money to buy something. So this is a combination. So I think there are some things that need to do better, but ultimately it is for people that he represents to judge him and decide. My was concerned. It is important for me that there is a support of Americans of this efforts. Americans understand why we're we fighting The why we're we fighting and we're overseeing the money and weapons we send? it's extremely important because if American people don't feel comfortable, there are a lot of issues and challenges we have. So that oversight and pressure extremely important from the West to do that. Because if we don't do it, we see what's happening, a lot of countries we've been involved in what masses
1: right there. Let's stay on that subject of American attitudes towards Ukraine. You're obviously a Republican. There's a lot of commentary about Republican attitudes towards Ukraine, there's more skepticism, I think it's fair to say, within the party. You're obviously not one of those great skeptic voices with regard to the importance of what is at stake in Ukraine. But what is your assessment of the Republican Party's attitudes towards the country?
0: Listen, don't ever underestimate Russian propaganda. They're very good, do and take advantages, and they use left and right, they do it in Europe too, to send propaganda to our right, and they've been hijacking some and using some dissatisfaction, what President Biden is doing or not doing, and spin it into Ukraine. They've been very effective to brainwash with a lot of things. Oh my gosh, Russia is for this righteous fight, you know, for you know religious rights and pure conservative values and Ukrainians uh, Voke people with Biden Plus associations of administration And to close alliances with Democrats It's not a good idea for any country Because there is a bipartisan support And it's important to have that bipartisan support So there's a lot of politics That the administration was doing Because they want to win elections So they use this issues to blame You know, Republicans For them, a lot of time not doing a good job In some things So the, unfortunately Ukraine is tangling In very heavy politics And Russia that is good cool. They took advantage of it. And they've been doing this propaganda to the point where, like, I have I'm come from a right of my party. I'm from grassroots. I've been elected for this vote. This is people that I fought in the trenches. And I meet and talk to them. And I understand the importance, what the value. I share this value. I understand why people concern, concerned. But I've been... Communicated with my base, with my people, and they understand what is taken, why it is. And then that's why I push on a lot of things that I know is important for our base and for Americans that willing to help. But I think, unfortunately, it hasn't been done as consistent in other areas and done organized in the way that Americans understand. So a lot of these people I talk is like, Victoria, oh, that's not what we're seeing there. And they have a lot of this... Conspiracy stuff. And you can see they had a network already. And I do it on my part. But unfortunately, like, Congress is also gets so involved with circus and drama and politics and everything else. So we're not really picking the
1: right battles
0: and fights.
1: Do you feel a bit like a lone voice on this issue here in Congress? No,
0: we have a lot of people actually that some people move vocal, some people less vocal. It's still, a strong bipartisan supporting people understand. Okay. So. Maybe it's people just busy with a lot of other things, too, and I get also busy in all directions. I just understand is what is importance, you know, and I understand that I can bring unique value and perspective. so but it's not necessarily like a lot of people care, you know, on a bipartisan basis, really, and a lot of things when people say that Republicans, Republicans help a lot with that particularly <laughs> that was pushed by Republicans in the House and in the Senate to put pressure because you know on the state of the union and address to put pressure on president biden and putting me there and some other people was had a significant impact you know and send significant message and help with american people to understand what was happening but i think it's unfortunate that right now you know ukraine is going to be tangled in big political fight that's bad for ukraine ukrainian people so we need to have more information and explain the American people what is at stake and what really China and Russia try to do. And ultimately, it is against the past. They officially say things like that. And I hate that we're not right now because I think it was big misogyny. Opportunity that if Russia wouldn't have decided to go that direction, it's unfortunate. It's sad for me to see because there are a lot of prospects and things were looking positive in the end of nineties and early was nineties was terrible banditism, wild west. And you know, but I think things were getting better it was like it seems like democratic institutions were built and something was positive and very hopeful at that time. And then everything went downhill. So it's sad.
1: Based on what you've just said, I take it you don't think Ukraine and the wider West should be worried about a Republican victory in the presidential election next year?
0: No, and I think what people don't understand that we, and we don't have like, I mean, some governments, presidents, premiers, they have a lot of power. In reality, one the strongest branch is Congress in the United States. We have the power of pearls and power of war. Even though we might be not we are good anymore at exercising the power, but ultimate constitutional power founding Fathers gave to our bridge understanding. And we are a presentation of a very variety group of people, of Americans. And as long as Americans understand what it is, and a lot of Americans still do, not one president. We don't have kings. We don't have queens. <laughs> we won the war. We'll
1: forgive you. We'll forgive you. <laughs> we
0: won the war. Sorry. <laughs> it's not a strike at you, but I'm just, you know, we fought the
1: war. Your biggest you mistake. Know? And
0: a lot of people, <laughs> even though I'll be honest with you, one of the best allies in a lot of very aligned with your country and what you've done much faster and better in Ukraine, I have to tell you, I have to give you credit, but that's a different conversation. But I think not one person, you know, you know, has the ability to say that, you know. And I think a lot of things, and also whatever, even Republicans say, yeah, there is a lot of politics, but there is real decisions that made. It. If
1: you were elected to the White House, how would you respond to President Putin?
0: So listen, the only way you can deal with stress, he only understands stress. And unfortunately, the opportunity for diplomacy was missed. So now get to diplomacy. You have to give to the table with weapons. That's the only way you can get. But it's sad for me to see how many lives are going to be destroyed. A lot of Russian lives are going to be destroyed, too. I mean, it's a very brutal war. We should not have this situation. And I think we should have been much more serious. And Russia has no business doing what they're doing. They have no excuses to do it, we gave them excuses, but there is no right to any country to enter sovereign country. I think international community have to be stronger because every other country should worry about the neighbor then. And also we have to remember, even though we can talk about the atrocity, which is true, we can talk also about the wolf resources and with China. And Russia doing now in Africa, you know, China take over resources using Wagner Group to control a lot of governments and be their hit machine, <laughs> unfortunately, because we kind of abandoned that continent. And a lot of challenges that happened destabilized and suffering in the Middle East, they're also financed by a lot of Russian weapons. A lot of things are happening in very destabilizing. So I think for the whole world, there's a big problem. We need to do much better. I hate to say, a lot of things are moving in the negative direction. And I have to say, you know, we talk about challenges and we have to strengthen democratic institutions in a lot of new democracy, but we can never forget to be vigilant with mature democracy. We have a lot of challenges to ourselves. We are not like perfect. We are just the same human beings. there is no difference between the people. We're all the same everywhere with, with strengths and weaknesses about how much freedom we have. And that's what makes countries on the freedoms and the ingenuity and people on the ground, not politicians. on top, most of them you don't pay 10 bucks an hour. but that's not what made the country great. but people on the ground, and that's what you have with freedoms of people. To excel and succeed on things that they're good at and they want to pursue, so whichever way they will, no one had the right to tell. But we sometimes forget it too, and I've seen it so much, including in Europe. You know, this is happening, including in Western Europe. I have family in Germany, so I have you know, and I don't want to pick a Germany, but I'm a little bit more familiar. I used to go there often.
1: That's right, of I'm English
0: that's concerning. And we have to sometimes look at ourselves and say, no, 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 we have to be better. Too many people died for us. Too many people tried to build a different country and environments, and we have to value that. But one thing that I just don't think we do is a good job and teach a new younger generation and young people the importance of freedom and how hard it is to get it back a lot of ukrainians are dying you have to pay for blood with blood and we do not want to go there but we're not instilled with love or freedom it's interesting so how many i see like cuban immigrants you know and they come a lot of them you know for a second generation but even their children grandchildren people who escaped cuba you know how patriotic they are, how they understand how they love freedoms, they love a lot of things, because it's still, you know, because that oppression, and maybe that's why it's crazy enough, made me run for office is because I understand the difference, you know, I understand that and I'm like, oh my gosh, in my life I grew up in socialism.
1: It's quite a story.
0: Sometimes God decides something, and put you in a situation and for a reason, you know, I never thought. You know, I was born in Soviet Union, in a little town, and you know, with a lot of propaganda anti American propaganda that that um, you know that was brainwashing us. But I always was curious enough, and I have went to study international relations because I was was interested. It was too so exciting because when I went to college, it was like. The debate of ideas and ideals. And I kind of always kind of question government. I'm a person that's not really fond of government too much in general. <laughs> the less power it has, the less it wastes and oppresses people. But you need to give limited power to do the right thing and then don't give them too much money to waste so it gets corrupt. So I just, by nature, I've seen have seen that I'm just person always question the government. So I just love that debate of ideas. We have half of academia, was it still pro-communist, with free enterprise, Friedman, Hayek, I read right? Alexis de Tocqueville with... Always... Democracy in America. So I came maybe like as a young person, idealistic. Okay, I tell you. So I believe in all of this idealistic value, and then I like, ooh, real politics and real things that happening. But sometimes when you have like a frog, if you boil them in the water, frog doesn't notice. You put like a in the boiling water. I'm like, oh my gosh, this just reminds me of like. Soviet Union, Russian techniques of politics. I mean, what's happened in the country? I mean, like, this is unacceptable. This is not what America is about. We should never allow that to be accepted in our country. We had people die not to have that accepted. So I'm always kind of, when I come to that, you know, that I understand that my job to make my country strong, because if America is not strong, I understand how important we are around the world probably more than a lot of people do and we have to strengthen our country from inside because i hate to say our adversaries want to do it you know not only international and not only you know abroad they want to weaken us from inside so important for us to do that and i understand the strengths of our country and it's going to be in what we're doing the only hope for a lot of countries around the world so i think in some ways we need to do better But I never thought that it's going to be a task, such a complex task with so many people life and how much destruction, but it gives me a unique perspective. And it's a very on the ground perspective. And I think, you know, God just puts challenges in front of us. You know, sometimes I was Look at myself and I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I get into this? And I look in some days and plus on top of it, there was, you know, so you have crazy politics. I had crazy racist primary generals, $22 million racist bombarding with propaganda stuff and media As usually as a conservative republican woman you don't have too many friends over there let me tell you you are attacked all the time even sometimes they look like i wasn't even there why is they writing this stuff about me at some point like i just don't have time to deal with it i have more important issue i'm not going to get them i'm going to try it because i know what is at stake and how we're doing it but then, you know, from other things, I look at that, I'm thinking, okay, I just have all this media talking BS about. So what? Look at like, thinking how much people sacrifice their life, dying for freedom, sacrifice their family lives, how tough it is. And I spent a lot of time, not like, just dealing with Ukraine, with Afghanistan, and visit a lot of military places, bases. And I'm like, you know what? You can't just in <laughs> Victoria. Just toughen up. People have a harder stuff than you do. So in some ways, it strengthens me. And then I also think, you know, it brings me, some perspectives that I came from very humbled environments. I came from one suitcase and young adventurous was nothing. And, you know, I came with countries of freedom and no matter what problems we have, no matter what challenges we have, and we do have some, we're still the country where someone like me could become a very powerful institution. You know, elected by American born people. I mean, I don't have like, immigrant district, <laughs> speaking with my Yankee accent. So this is the value that in America, people care your hard work, appreciate what you do and willing to fight the fight. So it kind of still shows that American dream is still alive. If you know, no matter what problems we have, and we have plenty of problems, you know, that couldn't happen to very many countries. You know, what can happen. So we still have that ability, if you're willing to get up, and people truly still believe in that, and people value you for what you do. So people want to think it's not, but it is, because there's no other reason. And people are willing to support you if you're willing to go in the trenches and fight the righteous fight. So we do have the power of we, the people, no matter what politicians think here, if American people, if no, I'm an ordinary American with ordinary abilities. And I just said, not even grown. Not, I came here, I didn't know anyone speaking with an accent. have so much trust of Americans to support me to be able to do it and go in the trenches with me to fight enormous amount of that. white. That was really what is our country about. We're a country with idealists and values and ideals. And we have to promote the same to other countries. And I think we need to do a better job doing that and communicating what it is and about that no one on top is going to tell you. So you as Americans can make a difference.
1: Congresswoman, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having
3: me. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David
1: Knowles and Louisa Wells.